the important thing is to use your body resources, your breathing, your movement, your natural body consciousness. You said something a minute ago, Georgie, that's really important. You said you couldn't sit with it. You know, you couldn't let yourself be with it. And the reason we're so big on teaching body-centered things is we really need to le need to know how to sit down with our feelings and be with them. The uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal several hundred years ago said, all of our problems begin with not being able to sit in a room by ourselves for 10 minutes doing nothing. Hello and welcome to the Mind to Lead podcast. I'm Georgie Hubbard and I am on a mission to help you live a level 10 life. If you want to live an extraordinary life, a life full of passion and energy, of joy and abundance, then this is the podcast that teaches you how to do just that. Through my conversations with some extraordinary leaders and my own life experiences, I come to you weekly with all of the teachings and steps you need to take your life to the next level. So if you are ready to develop the mindset it takes to lead, then this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to the Mind to Lead podcast and today I am very excited and very honoured as I'm sat down with the one, the only Gay Hendricks. Gay is a New York Times best-selling author, psychologist and teacher in personal development, relationships and body intelligence. Gay has coached more than 800 executives and today he is with us to share his wisdom and his knowledge. Gay, thank you so much for being here on Thanksgiving. Wonderful to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Georgie. It's wonderful <laughs> to be with you guys. And uh, just let me start by saying thank you and uh, thank all of your listeners and viewers for their interest in the finer things in life. And I'm really happy to be here with you. I've been with uh, people on and off all day and had a giant Thanksgiving meal. So frankly, I'm very happy to go in an office by myself and just uh, talk to you for a little while. Yeah, amazing. Well, I am so excited to get into the podcast today. And I have just uh, finished The the Big Leap, which is an incredible book that I want everyone to go and read because it has, it's actually changed my life. And uh, I've read hundreds of books. And this, this is now going into my uh, number one book of all time, I think. And I'm going to reread it multiple times. So I definitely want to get into that. But you must have had quite a life, quite a journey to lead you to write these incredible books. So if you don't mind, please kick us off with a little bit about who, who you are, introduction to your life, your journey, and uh, over to you, Gay. Well, thank you. Uh, I was born in a little town in Florida, central Florida, not the romantic part of Florida with beaches and everything, but the part of Florida with alligators and swamps and things like that. Uh, and I uh, grew up down there, and I was never very interested in psychology but I became, I think, what you would call a wounded healer in a way, because I had some medical problems growing up. I had some glandular problems I was born with, and I was very obese as a child. And I was taken around to different medical um, you know, doctors and, and centers and things to try to figure out what was wrong, because everybody else in my family is very skinny. And then here's this fat kid in the middle of the family eating the same kind of food everybody else was eating. So anyway, something was clearly wrong. And so I went around to a bunch of different clinics and went on different drugs and things like that. But I never really got it handled until I took responsibility for it myself uh, when I was in my 20s. And I had an amazing enlightenment event that after which I lost more than 100 pounds in a year and made all sorts of other life changes. So in one way, my life started when I was 24 years old, when I had this wake up enlightenment experience. Um, it wasn't on drugs or meditation or anything like that. What happened was I went out for a walk on a winter day uh, near a boarding school in Hampshire I was teaching at, very cold winter day, and I slipped on the uh, ice and I went whoop down on my back. And I didn't knock myself out, but I fell down about six inches from a jagged rock. And I realized that if I'd fallen six inches to the right, I might have killed myself. And as I was laying there on the ground, 
it was like a whole new world opened up inside me. Suddenly, for some reason, I could feel I'd always been so focused on my weight and everything that I hadn't really penetrated down deep to where the things were like I felt sad about and things I felt angry about and things I felt scared about. And I could see my whole history down through myself. My father had died just before I was born, actually. It was at the end of the Second World War. And so I never knew my father, but suddenly I could feel my father's influences in me and that I had gotten this genetic thing from him that caused the the fat problem. And so it was like all of this opened up in this magical moment. Then the best part of it was, as I was laying there, I could feel the part of myself, the part of myself I called pure consciousness, which was deeper than everything else. And it was at the bottom of all of our experience. It was the center of everything. It's this vast open space of pure consciousness that everything else is structured in, like your emotions exist in that and your history exists in it, but it's deeper and more profound than any of them because it's the same thing that would be there if you had grown up next door and had a different set of parents and a different set of uh, experiences in life. So we all share this state of pure consciousness that I'm talking about, but not everybody gets to feel it all the time because life gets busy and our emotions get in the way and all that. So, but it was for me, two minutes of feeling this kind of open, spacious bliss inside me. And then what happened was as I started to come out of it, I should have also mentioned that I was a heavy smoker at the time, cigarettes, in addition to being obese, and I also was in a job I didn't like, and I was also in a relationship that was very toxic. And so I had a whole bunch of things going on in my life. And as I started to come out of that bliss experience, I felt myself wanting to have a cigarette again. And I realized I was going to have to walk back home and get into the same argument I'd left the house to get out of, you know. And so I felt my old personality coming back. But here's the part that I want everybody to pay attention to, because what changed my life was before I came out of that experience, I made a new commitment. I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to feel that pure, spacious bliss consciousness in every moment of my life. That was my order. That's sort of what I ordered up from the universe. That was my manifestation desire. And so I made a commitment to that. And since then, everything changed. As a matter of fact, Things changed right away because I went back home and suddenly I couldn't eat the foods I'd been eating, all the hamburgers and milkshakes and French fries. And I'm sure you guys don't have that kind of unhealthy food down in Australia. But, oh, we uh, do. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> we have it on every street corner here. And so, um, but that's what I'd been living on. And so for the next year, I started eating things that I'd never eaten before, fruits and vegetables and grains and, you know, whole foods kind of things. But, you know, this was 50 years ago. And so there weren't health food stores back then. So I really had to work at it. But the magic was that during the year, I lost more than 100 pounds and have kept it off ever since. I weigh about 180 pounds now and uh, I'm six feet tall. So, um, you know, I look like an athletic build rather than a pear-shaped build that I had in the earlier part of my life. So in a way, everything started with the magic of that experience because within a year, I lost the weight. I got into a graduate program in counseling. Then I went to Stanford for my PhD in counseling psychology. You know, the, the rest of my life has been dedicated to discovering and revealing the potential of human beings, but it really started with that moment of finally discovering my own. Yeah. Wow. That's such an incredible story. And I think there's so many people in life that can relate as well. But I'd love to get your thoughts because I, I hear this a lot. Like people have this moment in life where it's usually when they hit rock bottom or they go through something quite traumatic in their lives. They lose, they lose a loved ones, they lose a job to really finally get that awakening. Do you, do you think we need to go to those extremes or have those like real life jolting moments to, to make the transformation or in your experience, is there a better way? Oh, there's a much better way. The, the way we teach now is much better. See, I think what I always tell my students is 
the universe is very happy to teach us by tickling with a feather if we're paying attention, but it's also totally happy to hit us over the head with a sledgehammer if we refuse to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been letting life sledgehammer me for 24 years, you know, and then finally when I fell down, it gave me the big sledgehammer. But no, what's important in transformation, how you can save yourself a lot of pain is by asking what I call wonder questions. That's a very good way to start. Begin to ask yourself, hmm, why am I 100 pounds overweight? Or hmm, what's underneath this feeling of anxiety I have? Or hmm, why is it that I can't get a full night's sleep? That's a wonder question. But you see, most people don't ask questions that way. They ask them critically. They say, oh, why am I 100 pounds overweight? And you only get the quality answer to the quality of question you get. Mm -hmm. So you, if you ask a big, open-hearted wonder question, you get a big, useful answer. And so you can save yourself a lot of time by simply opening up and using your natural gift of wonder and curiosity. Mm, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I went through a um, definitely a bout of anxiety in my life. And it was it was like I didn't want to sit with it. It was like I just kept on sort of putting a Band-Aid on it and go, oh, not this again. It will go away or go away. And, and, and eventually it didn't. It just kept on coming up and it kept on coming up. And that that feather that you spoke about, I think that was my anxiety, like constantly just like tickling me, being like, you're not happy. You're not in the right job. You're not doing the right career. And it wasn't until I started to listen, to tune in. And, and I began to meditate. I began to journal. I began to ask myself some really deep questions like, what do I want? What makes me happy? What brings me joy? So I think that it is the power of your questions. And that's such a powerful piece of advice for anybody who is a little bit stuck right now. And I, I think this year, this the last year we've been through 2020 has really woken a lot of people up. And what I'm hearing is there's a lot of people right now who have spent a lot of time on their own. <laughs> They've realized that this house I have, do I need it? This car I drive, do I need it? This job I'm in, is it fulfilling me? So we're going into a new year. We're building up to 2021. How can people start to think and, and what should they do if they do find themselves in a situation where, you know, they're feeling anxious, they're feeling a bit stuck? What sort of steps would you sort of encourage people to take? One of the things that we really teach here at our institute and in our online classes now is the power of your own body wisdom. Both Katie, my wife and I, uh, we just celebrated our 39th anniversary the other day, by the way. So we've wow, been working and teaching together for more than half of our lives. <laughs> Thank you very much. She's in the other room preparing for a class of her own. Um, but the important thing is to use your body resources, your breathing, your movement, your natural body consciousness. You said something a minute ago, Georgie, that's really important. You said you couldn't sit with it. You know, you couldn't let yourself be with it. And the reason we're so big on teaching body-centered things is we really need to le need to know how to sit down with our feelings and be with them. The uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal several hundred years ago said, all of our problems begin with not being able to sit in a room by ourselves for 10 minutes doing nothing. And... And that's why when when executives come here to work with us and take one of our intensives uh, uh, and the first thing we do with them is we have them go in a room by themselves for 10 minutes and just sit there and ask themselves, hmm, what do I most love to do? Hmm, what do I most love to do? Because it gets them used to asking wonder questions. But for many of them, they come out at the end of 10 minutes and said, my God, that felt like 10 hours in there. I haven't done that in so long, you know, but it, we all need to go down in there and just be with ourselves. And I discovered meditation when I was uh, in my late 20s. So I've been a daily meditator now for almost 50 years, I think 48 years, last time I counted up since 1972 when I learned. And one thing meditation does is that in the kind of meditation I do anyway, a couple of times a day, you get quiet and you just go inside and you use a mantra and then you get very quiet and still inside. And then when you come out, you feel 
wow, I just feel like I took a nap and took a shower, you know, kind of that uh, easy, clear feeling. I think we all have access to that, but we need to do things on a daily business, uh, daily basis to cultivate it. Uh, it's just like anything else, you know, like exercise. You know, I couldn't live without exercise now. I, I work out at the gym three days a week and my wife and I take long walks and ride our bikes. If I didn't do that, I'd feel terrible. Same thing if I didn't eat the food I eat, I'd feel terrible. And the same thing with the, the use of ourselves as a healing instrument. You know, we are our own best healers if we can learn to use our own natural resources and not criticize all ourselves all the time, because you only get the big answers by wondering open-heartedly about what's going on with you. Yeah. Everything you just said there, I'm sat here nodding like a nodding dog because I do everything that you just said. I, I'm i like you. If I don't move my body, I don't feel good. I think our bodies are designed to move. We, my husband and I, we, we go for long walks on the beach. And I, when I'm walking on the beach, I'm so present. And ideas just come to me. And I just think, wow, this is incredible. And then going to lift some weights in the gym, getting my heart rate up, and then making sure I'm eating all the right food. And I say, I said this to someone the other day, people take better care of their cars and they do their own body. You know, like they, they put the petrol in, they get taken for a clean and then they'll go and have a cheeseburger from McDonald's. So I'm like, what is going on? Like, why are we living in a society where people are taking more care of their cars and their homes and their own body that we only have one of? You know, we can't go and give up to go to the shop and go, oh, what a new body, please. We get this one vehicle our whole lives and it's so important to take care of it. But the biggest um, thing that comes up when I speak to people is, oh, I don't have time. You know, I've got a busy life, yeah. got a busy job, got a busy thing. And, and in your book, The Big Leap, you talk about Einstein time. So let's overcome that now about the time factor. Uh, so, yeah, over to you, Gabe. What, what is Einstein time and how can people make more time to do the things that are important? Yes, I've been living by Einstein time for since I discovered it. I'll tell you what it is in a moment. But since I discovered it, I haven't ever been bored and I haven't ever been in a hurry even though I've written 46 books and been around the world two and a half times and made 2,500 lectures and all that, I've never once been in a hurry or been bored since I discovered Einstein time. So that's the payoff, kids. So here's what it is. Most of us go around talking as if we're the victim of time. You know, somebody asks us something and we say, oh, I'm sorry, I'd love to talk to you, but I don't have time right now. So we're pleading a scarcity of time. So now, guess what happens? Any belief you plead for comes back to you times 10. Any limiting belief that you try to keep in place keeps coming back to you more and more. Now, remember Einstein's thing he said about the theory of relativity. Somebody asked him to give a one-minute um, definition of the theory of relativity. And he said, okay, it's like this. One minute sitting on a hot stove feels like an hour. But one hour with your beloved feels like a minute. Now, why is that? That's the theory of relativity. And so let's apply that to ourselves for a moment. One hour doing what you most love to do goes by like a minute, whereas <laughs> a minute of doing what you hate to do, the same old stuff you do, yeah, yeah, that goes by like an hour. I don't know about you, but I spent my entire high school time from about, you know, 12 to 17 years of age looking up at the clock to see if the period was over yet, you know, and I just couldn't wait to get out of there. And so, of course, time went by very slowly. So that's, in a way, the theory of relativity. But here's how you apply it to yourself. Einstein time is when you take responsibility for time, where you realize you are the source of time. You're where time comes from. We may think it's on a clock over there, but that's not actually where time lives. Time lives in us. And if it lives in us, then we can make up more of it or less of it, however we want. 
based on our level of vibration. And so when you're vibrating in a humming way, you're open-hearted, mm, life is going along well, you're humming at that higher vibration, you're doing what you love to do, time is not an issue at all. It just disappears as an issue. But if you're not doing, like I say, you'll never have enough time to do all the things you don't want to do anyway. <laughs> you know, th that so if true. you don't want to do them anyway, you can't possibly finish them all. And so the first step that all of us need to do to get into Einstein time is to qu quit talking of ourselves as the victim of time. Stop saying, I've got to run, or I have to be there at two o'clock, or I, uh, oh no, I'm, I'm I, 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 that, but I'm late for a meeting. You know, all those moments where we plead ourselves to be the victim of time, those are, those are all lies. Mm -hmm. If you say to a person, I don't have time to talk to you right now, what you're really doing is saying a polite version of, I don't want to talk to you right now, but it's not socially polite to say that. So we say, I don't have time to do that right now. Or, gee, I'd love to. Um, but it's all about pleading victimhood with regard to time. Mm. I don't recommend pleading victimhood in general. I think we all ought to take full responsibility for being here and go through our lives and hang around with other people that take full responsibility for their lives. Uh, so that's the kind of life I want to live. In Einstein time, what you do is take responsibility for time, for your relationship with time. And since I did that, time has ceased to be an issue. I always get places on time. I always show up on time. I'm impeccable about that. Um, yesterday, as a matter of fact, I showed up at 11 o'clock for a Zoom meeting with uh, a group of our financial advisors, and they were four minutes late, and you would not believe the tongue lashing they got from me about <laughs> that, okay? I say, how can I trust you guys with a couple of million bucks of my money if you can't even show up on time? Yeah. And so, uh, of course, they went into, oh, Dr. <laughs> Hendricks, we're so sorry, so sorry, Dr. <laughs> Hendricks, please don't fire us, please don't fire us. Uh, but uh, if they did it again, I told them I would. Yeah. They'd yeah. be out the door. Yeah, I love so, that. Um, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one thing we can do in life is we have total control over how impeccable we are about time or anything else. If you show up on time, if you complete your agreements, if you pay the people you owe, that allows you a freedom. You get through life almost like on wings of blessings because you're you're not hindered down by incompletions and lack of integrity kinds of things. My grandmother, when I was a little boy, she used to say she was a very wise psychologist, although she didn't graduate from high school. Um, she said, if you always tell the truth, you'll never have to remember what you said. Oh. And I remember that's a very great idea, isn't it? You know, yeah. and I, I practice that, you know, because I have a terrible memory. And so I don't want to have to go around trying to remember what I said. But if I stay impeccable with the truth in the moment, then I don't have to go around and clean it up later. Um, I've worked a lot with uh, uh, early in my career with delinquents and uh, people that had committed crimes and that kind of thing. And one thing they almost all had in common was none of them were impeccable with their agreements. They didn't show up on time. They didn't keep agreements. If you if they told you they would do something, they didn't do it. So it's a key thing in mental, physical, emotional health is to pay attention to the integrity factor. Mm. I completely agree. And I loved what you said when you in your in the book, The Big Leap, when you were going through the, the upper limit problem and, you know, integrity was a big one that comes up when in those day to day moments. So I loved I'd love to talk about now about the upper limit problem because when I was reading it and I was reading it and I actually had to put the book down and really start reflecting and I'll, I'll share this with you and everyone listening like I was reading it and I was going wow I don't think I can recall a time in my life 
where I felt had amazing health, amazing relationship. My career was thriving. You know, my, my relationships were in, in, impeccable. There was always something that I was doing at the time when I reflected back that, okay, when my career took off, my relationship started to suffer or when my relationships were going well, my career started to, to go down. And I thought, why, why, why was I doing that? And then the more people I spoke to said, yes, I know what you mean. I do that as well. So I'd love for you to share the whole upper limit. Like what is upper limit? Why do we do it? And why do we set this thermostat so low and how do we break through? Well, it started with a discovery of my own way back, gosh, way back now, because I remember I was still working at Stanford after I got my PhD there because my daughter was six at the time and she was going to summer camp for the first time, a three day sleepover camp. So it was a big deal, you know, sleepover. And uh, so uh, and the camp was only about 10 miles away. It wasn't like on the other side of the country or anything, uh, but it was a big deal for me because I'd never had her go away for the night before. And uh, so I dropped her off at the camp and I went back to my office and I was working on a really exciting project that turned into my first book uh, in 1975. And I was talking to a colleague at lunch about my ideas and what I was doing in the book and I was feeling really high. And I came back from lunch and I was feeling so good and I sat down and all of a sudden I started thinking, oh my gosh, I bet Amanda's feeling lonely. You know, I started picturing her feeling lonely, sitting in a corner with none of the other girls. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I got a call. And so I called the director of the camp and I said, is Amanda okay? Um, you know, I just was worried about her being lonely and everything. And the lady was very dear. She said, she kind of chuckled and she says, Dr. Hendricks, you're the third person that's called this morning with that same idea. And she says, no, Amanda is out there. I can see her out in the field playing soccer with a bunch of other girls. She looks like she's totally happy to me. And so I got off the phone and I started thinking, OK, I was feeling so good. Why did I suddenly inject a faulty thought in my head, something that was not true? Why did I do that? And that was the first moment of my thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got an upper limit on how good I can feel. I have an allergy to feeling good all the time. <gasps> you know, when I start feeling too good, my allergy breaks out. <laughs> and it's not a physical allergy. It's, it, it, allergy. it's a psychological one. So I began to look at that in myself. And at the time, I had a girlfriend and... Um, I wasn't married to Katie yet, and she and I would get along great for, you know, like a week, and then <clears throat> something would happen, and then it would sometimes take three weeks to get over that, you know, and get back into the groove again, and then it'd happen again, and so again, I've got an upper limit issue. I When I get to a certain point of flow of love, I block it. It's like I don't feel like I deserve it, and then all of a sudden, boing. I began to realize there was a part of myself that did not feel like I deserved to be happy. There was a part of myself that believed I didn't deserve to feel good in my body all the time and didn't deserve to feel love all the time. And so I think what happens is we get love mixed up with pain a lot of times. So when more love happens, we get afraid of, uh oh, that same thing that happened to me way back is going to happen to me again. And so I know that was true for me. And so I started really working on that. And interestingly enough, at that time, I was seeing a lot of therapy clients from Silicon Valley, which was just getting going at the time. All the things that are big now, like Hewlett Packard and, and uh, Apple and all those were just beginning to get started. And they were all in my area. And so I worked with all these brilliant executives that were so smart, but they were so incredibly obtuse about their emotions. Mm. You know, they were brilliant, PhD mathematician, the head of yada, yada, you know, Hewlett Packard. But when it came time, their wife would say something like, I was feeling really tired this week. And Mr. Engineer would be all over it like, oh, well, you know, there's this new vitamin that you could take and all that kind of thing. You know, it was just an inability to be with another person's emotions. Mm. 
And as I began to look into that, I kind of had the same stuff inside me. So I started a big lifelong process of figuring out what's underneath the upper limit problem, what actually triggers it. And basically the answer is fear, that we start feeling better and then because of some old programming, a fear comes up. And there are only a few of them. One of them is a fear of being fundamentally unworthy, fundamentally bad, fundamentally wrong for some reason, convicted of a imaginary crime that you didn't do, but somebody else thinks you did. And, you know, like many people come to me and their issue was they were unwanted from the beginning of their life. And, but if you think about it, that was somebody else's opinion. Mm. That had nothing to do with you, mm. you know, but it takes a while for us to peel off the layers of that to realize that. And so I started working with that and I found there's three or four fears that people carry around. One of them that a lot of people in our field, Georgie, carry around is what I call the fear of outshining, where you get to a certain point in your career, you really start to shine, and then some old fear of outshining comes up and you turn down your light and pull your head back in. And I have worked with so many people in the entertainment business. I live near, you know, 90 minutes from Hollywood. And so a lot of the people I end up working with are people in the music field or actors or folks like that, uh, that uh, have an upper limit in the sense they there's a place they want to get to, but they haven't got there yet. And so I've had the pleasure of watching people I care about deeply walk on that stage and get their Grammy, you know, and, you know, there's nothing more heartwarming than see somebody use their genius more as a result of something I can help them with. And so, it's, uh, you know, that's why I hope I never have to retire. I, when I was in my thirties, I said, I want to create a job I would never want to retire from. And so far so good because <laughs> Uh, you know, every day I get to do some version of what I'm doing right now, either working with people directly or talking about it. And to me, it's the most fulfilling thing in the world to do what you love all the time. Uh, that's really what um, the Big Leap is trying to urge everybody to do is home in on that genius zone in themselves and Find a way to do that more and more so that you're always just adding a little bit more to the amount of time you spend in your genius zone. Mm, I absolutely love that. And I think as well, it, coming back to the fear, it's the messaging that we get from society. It's like it always happens in threes or, you know, this isn't, you know, this is too good to be true. And we have all these language around things. And I, and I noticed that I did it with myself, you know, when I'd make a big leap in my business, you know, I'd go, oh, this, 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 maybe this won't last. And, and the fear and the worry came up. So day to day, like what can people do if they identify a fear? So they take a big leap, their business starts to take off or their relationship starts to, to deepen and something comes up and they see themselves about to self-sabotage. Is there a process that we can do to sort of stop it and uh, just go back into our, you know, break through that, that glass ceiling and keep on pushing the barriers of health, wealth and success? Yes. The short answer is feel the fear, love the fear, feel and love the fear. Most of the time, the first thing we have to do is just feel it in our bodies. And for most of us, fear is something that occurs in the front of our bodies more. You know, you get butterflies in your stomach, uh, you get uh, sometimes heart racing, sometimes a clutch in the throat, but also the rest of your body is participating too. Your muscles get tighter, uh, your pelvic floor pulls up when you're tight. And, um, and pulls up when you're scared. So the first thing to do is drop into your body and feel it because that will give you the answer about how to move through it. The first step is feeling it. Then the second step is to love it as it is. Love it, just loving it as it is, not trying to make it go away. Uh, fear does not go away by telling it to go away. It doesn't like that. It doesn't like to be pushed around. Fear likes to be fluffed. It likes to be opened up to. It likes to be breathed with. You know, if you're angry, you can go pound pillows or something like that. But there's not a really thing to do with that when you're scared, except just kind of be with it. And if you're feeling shaky inside, feel shaky inside, but, but be with it in a mindful way. Then love it is really important because 
every single problem we have comes out of something that's unlovable in ourselves. And the direct action to take is simply to love it as it is instead of continuing to criticize it. You'll never criticize anything out of your psyche. I can guarantee you that. And nobody else can criticize it out of you from outside. Things let go when we begin to open up and love and accept them. Mm, absolutely. What what incredible advice just to sort of feel it, breathe into it and acknowledge it. I think that's that's very uncomfortable. And I think that I remember like like when I used to get the anxiety, it was I did like I said, I didn't want to feel it, but I've learned now to take a deep breath and go, this is excitement. So I just, mm-hmm. I just re, re, reframe it. But I, I notice that fear always comes up when I am about to take like a step into my zone of genius or when, when I'm about to do something that's outside of my comfort zone. So can, can you talk a little bit about the zone of genius, what it is and, and, and why it's so important to, to find our own zone of genius? Yes. Well, you'll find out a lot more about that in my new book in the spring or yes. in the spring in America uh, in April, uh, the genius zone. So yeah, I working with all those brilliant um, Silicon Valley people, first of all, I found out that all of them had something that they really loved about their work, but most of them got too busy to do that thing. Mm. You know, like one of the people who was, uh, a lot of these people made stuff that I didn't even understand, you know, high tech stuff. But there was this one really brilliant executive. He said that the most wonderful thing in his life is when he just gets to sit down for a while and play with ideas mm-hmm. for a few minutes, even, and just without being interrupted and that kind of thing. And I asked him, Well, how long has it been since you did that? And he said, Gosh, you know. It was a matter of months, and we're not talking about some complicated thing here, but for some reason we get this block inside that keeps us from opening up to our genius zone because we get locked into our excellent zone, which is one level below, and your excellent zone is a fine thing, but it's not a good place to get trapped ultimately because if you're a gifted creative person, you're going to want to discover your genius. And if you stay locked in the excellence zone too long, that's where burnout comes from. Even if you're doing a good job and making good money and getting lots of attaboys and girls and pats on the back and that kind of thing, promotions, you know you're not in your genius zone, you know, and it, it irritates you inside. And so I was the same way. When I first started figuring this out, I calculated that I was only spending about 10 minutes a day in my own genius zone. Mm-hmm. And so I said, my God. Uh, and so I began to work on it. And yeah, I was spending maybe 10 to 15% of my time within a six months. But then I thought, okay, I got to do better than that. So I set this outrageous goal of spending a third of my time in my genius zone. And whoosh, it took no more than probably six months, maybe maybe a year to get there. And then I set the goal of having 50% of my time in my genius zone. Again, it took me a year or two to get there, but suddenly instead of 10% of my time, I'm now spending half my time doing what I most love to do. And, you know, that's heaven on earth. But then I said, by the end of the century, I said, 1999, I want to be 90% of my time in my genius zone. And then the rest of my 10% of my time, waking hours, getting around from place to place. And, Mm. you know, like things I take care of in the house. I always say I'm not exactly a genius at tidying up the cat's litter, but I do it because, uh, you know, it's in my 10% of my time. that's not exactly in my genius zone, but stuff I like to do to keep life working well around here. So, um, But that makes for good living. If you know that when you roll out of bed in the morning, that you're going to spend 90% of your day in love with what you're doing, that's a a great mindset to go into the day, a great heart set to go into the day with. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of people that listen to this and they are new to starting businesses. They are solopreneurs. So they're, they're operating in their zone of incompetence, their zone of competence, their zone of excellence, and probably not as much as they want to in their zone of genius. Do you, do you have any advice for those people who are just starting out and they, they, they know what their zone of genius is, but they're not sort of able at the start to do it day to day? Any sort of advice for those types of people? a very practical one that works for a lot of the people that we use. And that is, it seems so obvious, put it in your calendar, mm. write in the 10 minutes tomorrow where it's going to go. Mm. Or if you can do 20 minutes, put in 20 minutes, but actually put it in as an event in your calendar, because if you don't, it's going to get pushed aside. And so I have people sit here, people that might be the you know, chairman of the board of Exxon or something like that. I have them sit here and do that. You know, they think it's crazy, but I have them go through their calendar and their, uh, and sometimes they actually have to call an assistant to do it because they don't know how to operate their own calendar. <laughs> and so, uh, because as you probably figured out from your business work, sometimes CEOs of big corporations aren't necessarily uh, the most clued in people in the world as far as the ordinary aspects of life. And so uh, I've actually had to help one guy once tie a bow tie, you know, before a speech, <laughs> you know, even though even though he made $20 million a year running this company, and I was his humble $1,000 a day consultant back in the day. Uh, anyway, the, the point I'm making is that even people that are functioning at the very high levels of the game aren't used to focusing on their genius. And so they have about as much fear of it as everybody else. So put it in your calendar. If you can put 10 minutes tomorrow in your calendar and then 20 minutes a day next week, you are so on your way. And even if you do nothing but go in that room for 10 minutes and say, hmm, what is my zone of genius? Hmm, what is my zone of genius? That's how we start people here, just using wonder questions to open up their consciousness because most of us aren't used to asking our questions that way in an open-hearted spirit of wonder. It works magic, it really does. And I think the second piece of advice is go and buy Gay's new book, Genius Zone, because then you'll know all about how to operate it all the time. So I think that's that's amazing. And Gay, look, I, I would now just love to, you said at the start that you and Katie have been married all these years. Like, what's the secret? I just think that I, in your book, you talk a lot about relationships in the big leap and you say that you haven't had an argument in, well, it'd be longer now, but over 30 years or something, it's, it's, it's incredible. So how, how have you done it? Like, talk to me about, you know, how you and, and Katie work so well together and what's the secret? Well, I feel like I discovered the secret just before I met Katie and I used the secret to manifest Katie in my life, because once I figured out what I'm going to tell you in a moment, it only took me a month to find my soulmate. Wow. I was 34 years old at the time. And in my teens, in my 20s, I think I'd created just about every relationship disaster you could possibly take. I always say, up until I met Katie, my relationships always had the trajectory of the titanic they would start <laughs> off with great they would start off with great fanfare yay champagne but six months later i would always hit the iceberg and the relationship would fall apart and it took me until my 30s to realize that i was the iceberg the iceberg wasn't over there it was me i kept running into a part of myself and so on one magic day in the year of 1979 in december of 1979 I actually sat down on the floor, cross-legged in my little apartment in Colorado, where I was a university professor, and I meditated for a while, and then I decided to just sit there and find out, ask myself, what have I been doing wrong in relationships, and what, how could I fix it? And I happened to, right after that, get into an argument with my then-girlfriend, and in the context of that argument, suddenly I got the download. And <laughs> here's what the download was. I was in the middle of this argument with Carol, and the arguments, I, I can't remember what we were criticizing each other for, because what I realized was the arguments were all the same. 
I suddenly realized, oh, I'm not having my 500th argument with Carol over the last five years. I'm having my 500th version of the exact same argument. That just hit me. I saw the pattern. And then as soon as I did that, my mind, it was like I had the pattern just drop in. And I realized that the problem was always caused by one or the other of us would not tell the other one the truth about something. And it could be something like I'm scared or I'm angry or I was hurt the other day when you did dot, dot, dot. But there was a, a concealment or a withhold, something that we didn't speak about. Then out of that withhold, I would start projecting onto her. I would start criticizing her. Uh, and then, of course, she would start doing the same back to me. She would start criticizing me. And we get into an argument about whose fault it was. So both of us would be projecting onto the other one. It's your problem. No, it's your problem. It's your problem. You know? And I hope you've never done that, but I suspect that you may have done <laughs> well, that once past, or twice yeah, in your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, I also realized that I messed up relationships by not being true to my creative mm. spirit, that I was would often be in relationships like this one with Carol, where she would resent my going into a room by myself and writing for three hours. But that's my life. You know, I go in a room till to this day for a few hours and write by myself. And so it's part of my art. It's part of my life. And if that's not okay with the other person, they criticized me about it, and I didn't like that. And so I realized I want to be with a woman who is so dedicated to her creativity just as much as I am to mine. And so I, I said these three things out loud. I went back to my little cottage, and I sat down again, and I said, okay, I want to create a relationship where both people tell the truth to each other about whatever, where both people take responsibility for what's coming up rather than blaming it on the other person by automatically going to blame. The third thing was, I want a relationship where both people are dedicated to their creativity. And then I said the magic words to the universe. I said, if it's not in the cards for me to have that, perhaps there's some reason why I'm not supposed to have that in this life. Okay, I can live with that. But I promise you this, I'll never settle for less than that. So that did it. The next month on January 10th of the new decade, January 10th, 1980, I walked into a room of about 50 people who were there to hear me uh, to hear me give a talk. And I had flown from Colorado to California to give a talk and it was um on a couple of books I had written and there was a woman in that audience that had bought my book pretty much the first day it came out and had liked it very much and made a point of being the first person to sign up for this talk. And as I was looking around the room before I gave my talk and started my little seminar, I was looking around the room just to kind of get a feel of people's energy and to see if they were in a good mood and that kind of thing. And I went past this one woman that seemed like she had a, I don't know, a glow to her or something. And I, I, I just had to take a second look, you know, so I went past her and I came back and oh, I got to find some way to talk to her. You know, I was sort of peering over there to see if she had a wedding ring on and all that. <laughs> and so um, anyway, to, to make a, uh, I'll shorten the story here. She came up later to ask me a question during the break. And I said to her, because I was just into this truth-telling thing that I just committed to, I said, by the way, I'd like to let you know that I feel very attracted to you. And I don't know anything about you, except as I was looking around, your glow kind of captivated me. And uh, I, I, I'd love to ask you out for a cup of coffee after the thing, but I want to let you know that I'm only interested 
in a relationship with three characteristics to it. And I carefully explained that to her in about, you know, 30 seconds or so of, of rapid conversation. And I, I told her, I'm only interested in relationships where both parties are committed to truth telling. I'm only interested in relationships where both parties are committed to taking responsibility rather than blaming. And I'm only interested in a relationship where both people are committed to their creativity. Now on those terms, would you like to have coffee with me? <laughs> and there was about a 15 second pause while she digested this and tried to figure out whether I was crazy or not. And then at the end of it, she said, how about lunch tomorrow? <laughs> you know, so not just coffee, but lunch. Yeah. And so that was the beginning. That was, uh, that was now more than 40 years ago. As I said, we just uh, wow. had our 39th wedding anniversary. Amazing. Amazing. So you have not had an argument in 39 years? Or uh, no, you? no, no. Uh, no, I, I, I want to correct that impression. Okay. It took us probably... No, we haven't had an argument in the 20 years we've lived in this house. We haven't had an argument this century wow. or no one else. Uh, no one here has said a critical word to the other one this century. So that's the way I like to put it, because I can remember some arguments we had in the last century. But I know for a fact since we've lived in this house uh, 20 years now that there's never been a negative vibration in this house. If anybody's saying anything critical or anything like that. Um, And we've had tremendous number of meetings in here and parties and, you know, there have been thousands of people through this house over the years at parties and gatherings and that kind of thing. So what we did, we started out in 1980. We just made these commitments to telling the truth, to taking responsibility, to living in our creativity. And it took us probably 10 years of just working on those things to get to the place where we were doing them, you know, 98% of the time. But then in the 1990s, life took a gigantic big leap for us because one night we're working with eight couples in our living room. Next day, we get a call from an up and coming talk show host with a funny name, Oprah. Oh, and, wow. Uh, <laughs> it says, would you like to come on our show and talk about your relationship techniques? So next minute we're out in Chicago doing it in front of 10 million people instead of a dozen people in our living room. And boy, you know, nowadays they talk about the Oprah effect, you know, uh, uh, but it's really true because over the next 20 years, I'd say between me and my wife, we, we put on well over 2 million frequent flyer miles going around the world doing lectures wow. and uh, workshops and things like that, as well as doing our stuff here at home. Um, but um, it life kind of took off like a, a rocket in 1990, which put a lot of new relationship challenges in front of us, like you know, being away for periods of time, being back and forth to home, being, you know, I'd be zooming off to New York to do three days and Katie would be zooming off to Berlin to do a week. And so it puts new stresses and strains on our relationship. And we also, we were, you know, we went into a whole different financial level. So we, you know, accumulated a bunch of stuff that we later had to get rid of or <laughs> chose to get rid of, you know, we had a mountain house and a beach house and a townhouse and a business building and, you know, fancy cars and that kind of thing. And one day we woke up and realized, Golly, you know, uh, we've accumulated all this stuff we don't want to deal with anymore. So we downsized over the past 20 years, uh, 25 years now. And so we have one home we love now. And I have a nice car, but I have no desire to have any more. And uh, we go, uh, we do our courses on Zoom now. So <laughs> uh, it cuts down on overhead. We don't have to have a giant building like we used to have. Yeah, that's uh, what, wow. And that's just absolutely incredible. And I think like with the divorce rate, I think it's like one in three at the moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's so sad. And I think that I love what you said about people taking a hundred response, hundred percent responsibility for themselves. I think that's so, so powerful and also growing together. You know, I, I've, I've reading your, uh, the big leap and then my husband's also reading the big leap. And now we're so aware of the upper limit problem that we go, Oh, are you up limiting? You know, I think having that awareness as well. And I think when you grow together, that's so, so powerful because you can almost like 
not sort of hold each other accountable, but yeah, maybe like you sort of go, oh, okay, is this an upper limit? You know, are we, are we squabbling over something that actually doesn't need to be squabbled about? And it's just so amazing. So I think growing together is so powerful, but also allowing each other the space to be in our zone of genius and supporting one another as well. So that's just so, so powerful. Um, Gay, I'm so conscious of your beautiful time, Einstein time. Um, so I love to ask this question to everybody that comes on the podcast and I am really excited to hear your answer. So talk a lot about like people talk a lot about success these days. And I think that there's a lot of that weight to put on, you know, what home you have, what car you drive, how many designer purchases you have. And, and I, I really want people to understand that it's, that's, that's not success. Well, in my opinion anyway, but I'd love to know what does success mean to you? Success is having everything I want and loving everything I have. Mm -hmm. I think we all need to define carefully what success means, you know, because mm -hmm. I kind of get people on the other end of things where they've been extremely successful and then that's led them to get a divorce or they've been extremely successful and then something else has crashed and burned in their life. And so there's a big split oftentimes between their material success and what counts for success. I actually, I think it's really good to write it down. I have another book called Five Wishes, mm. and I recommend everybody should write down the five big wishes that they have for their life. Mm. When I did that, the very first couple of things that came up had nothing at all to do with material things. Like the first one that came up, this was before I'd met Katie. I, I realized that the number one thing that would make my life feel like a success is if I could create a lasting love relationship with a woman with whom I could grow and change over the years. And because I realized I'd already written some books about self-esteem and I wrote a book called Learning to Love Yourself that was very popular around the 1980s. And so I'd already been very successful and was making plenty of money and things like that. But I realized if I were on my deathbed 50 years from then and I hadn't created that relationship, my life wouldn't feel successful. So it may be a little bit different for everybody else. But once I realized that was my number one wish for my life, it helped me get the energy on it that then led to creating Katie in my life. Wow. So I think that's a great place to start is just write those things down. They can change. You can change them and everything. But right now, what's the number one big wish for your life? Then what's the number two big wish for your life? Once you get clear on it, it helps organize your energies. Mm. That's so, so powerful. I think that everyone is just, I know for me, I've had just so many breakthroughs from talking to you today and I can't wait to get your new book. Uh, but for, for those that want to, to reach out and to, to buy your books, enroll in your seminars and your workshops, where should they go? Where's the best place to find you? The best place is Hendrix.com and that's spelled H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. So that's a great place to go because there you can find out about all our seminars and and um, our books are everywhere online, um, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those kinds of places. And if you have a good bookstore in your neighborhood, I hope we're showing up there, too. Um, <laughs> Certainly are. <laughs> I, we sell a lot of books in Australia. Blessings to the folks in Australia. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. It always pops up big on the charts they send us. So uh, special blessings to people in uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and Byron Bay. People <laughs> in Byron Bay are great consumers of Gay Hendricks books. Well, we're just an hour up from there. So uh, yeah, your, your books are definitely all in our, in our bookstores and I will be buying every single one of them and I hope that all of my <laughs> listeners will as well. So Gay, thank you so much. You have been absolutely incredible. Please keep up the work that you do because it's needed in the world now more than ever. And uh, it's been an absolute honor to sit with you today. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Georgie. Blessings to you on your work. 
thank you so much for listening to the Mind to Lead podcast. I'm excited to announce that I have just opened up enrollment for the Mind Body to Lead 12-month transformational program starting early 2021. Now, I think we can all agree 2020 has not been the year anyone expected. So why not set yourself up for an incredible 2021? So if you're looking to take your life to the next level, overcome that fear, doubt and uncertainty, get in the best shape of your life both physically and mentally, feel energized every single day and wake up with passion and positivity no matter what is going on around you, then be sure to jump to the Mind Boy to Lead website where I'm currently taking enrollments for next year's program. Now, the best part is if you're part of the VIP pre-launch list, you'll also receive up to 54% off the general public price. Now, I'm only taking a limited amount of people because I really want to ensure I give that personal approach, then this means that spots sell fast. So don't wait. You deserve to take your life to the next level, to wake up every single day feeling amazing. So join the VIP list today and don't miss out on this life-changing program. Plus, get a chance to win an entire year's worth of coaching for free. So head over to the mindboytolead.com slash VIP to sign up today and let's make 2021 your best year yet. Once again, thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a beautiful day. Take care.